Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by Eden Foods, the most trusted name in certified organic clean food. When you shop online at EdenFoods.com, enter the coupon code ORGVIEW to receive 20% off any regularly priced items, excluding cases. For other promotional offers, please visit TheOrganicView.com's website. And don't forget to check out our contest section. Today, my guest is Mark Crutcher, and we're going to be talking about his documentary called Mayafa 21. According to Merriam-Webster, eugenics is defined as a science that deals with the improvement, parentheses, as by control of human mating, and parentheses, of hereditary qualities of a race or breed. Mark Crutcher produced a documentary called Mayafa 21, which focuses on eugenics in the African-American community. The title comes from the Swahili term Mayafa, which means tragedy or disaster, and is used to describe the centuries of oppression of African people globally during slavery, apartheid, and colonial rule. 21 refers to the Mayafa of the 21st century. With the terminal disease rates within the African-American community, it almost seems to be expected that inevitably their fate should be tied into a disease that is caused by diet or environment. Mayafa 21 seeks to prove that with the eugenics movement, African Americans are being targeted even at an earlier point in life, straight from the womb. So on today's show, I'll be talking to Mark Crutcher, and we're going to be talking about this very interesting and very well-documented film as far as what they have uncovered and the point that they are trying to make and also talk about why this is such a sensitive subject to so many people. So I would like to welcome to the show Mr. Mark Crutcher. Good afternoon, sir. Hello, how are you? Glad to have you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk about your film, especially with our audience. It's amazing when you talk to people about the subject of eugenics, most people have never even heard of it. So, Mark, can you take a moment to just explain what eugenics is and and how it all came about? Well, eugenics is a a philosophy or a worldview that was basically created by a man named Francis Galton back in the 1850s and 1860s. And uh, it, it argues that you can improve the human race by controlling who is allowed to survive and who is allowed to propagate their particular uh, race or their particular um, ethnicity or, or whatever. The, the idea is that we should not leave uh, evolution in the hands of nature, that we should take control of it and uh, hopefully um, improve it through this process. Now, there's there's several interesting things about this. It ties directly into the into the theory of evolution as advanced by Charles Darwin. And in fact, Francis Galton was Charles Darwin's first cousin. And they basically, if you read the history of these two people, what you see is that Charles Darwin was kind of the philosopher that advanced this theory of eugenics. And Francis Galton was the guy who actually was did the nuts and bolts, the mechanics, who made it, who made it, um, who who helped to spread this as a pragmatic philosophy. Um, and if you read what both of these men were saying, um, it, it it comes down to a very simple principle. They believed that if you if you took life from the lowest form of primate to the highest form of human, which they considered to be the Aryan or the Mediterranean uh, Caucasian races, at the point at which you you change from, when you go from being a primate to being a human, at that point, the highest form of primate is, is in their opinion, was the gorilla, and the lowest form of human was the African or the Aborigine. 
And their theory was that the wider you make this gap between those two, the more superior the human race becomes. The obvious result of that being that your your goal then is to eliminate those humans that are closest to the primates, which are which they considered again to be the gorilla, and the lowest form of, of human they considered to be the African or Aborigine. So the, the theory would be then you get rid of the Africans and Aborigines, and the human race becomes better. And that's that's their that was their philosophy at its at its call and at its root. Now, what happened to the movement? To the eugenics movement? Yes, sir. Well, it's still very much alive and well. Um, the, the way this became, you, you have to go back to the origin, which is what we did with Maafa 21. Mm-hmm. We we started going backwards in time until we got to the very origins of this, so so that we could then connect the dots between then and today. And the the, the strange thing here was that at this same time in America was the was the time when the abolitionist movement, the people uh, trying to end slavery, legalize slavery in America, um, were beginning to make their most inroads. And you have to remember that by this time in history, we're talking about the 1850s, early 1860s, but primarily in the 1850s, most civilized countries in the world, and, and including our two closest neighbors, Canada and Mexico, had both outlawed the, the practice of slavery. And it was clear that on the horizon was the end of slavery in America through one method or another. And what you began to see in America was that the ultra-wealthy, and, and we're not talking about just rich people, we're talking about the ultra-wealthy elitist in America who had primarily made their their fortunes on the backs of, of slaves began to wonder what was going to happen when these slaves were freed. You have four million people in a culture that is considerably smaller than it is today, in a population that's considerably smaller. And they were concerned that when you release these four million people into the into the general population, that it was going to cause the economy to collapse uh, for, a, for a variety of reasons. But they, this is what they believed was going to happen. And so they started looking for ways to deal with this issue of releasing these black people into the culture and how it could be done without causing the economy collapse. The first thing they came up with was the idea of colonization. And colonization is the theory that you could just send all the blacks back to Africa. Um, there was several problems with that. First off, there was no practical way to do it. You couldn't, put, you couldn't build enough ships to put 4 million people on and, and put them out on the ocean going back to Africa. Another problem was that the vast majority of slaves that were in America at that time were born in America. They had never been to Africa to begin with. You couldn't send them back to a place they'd never been to. The other problem was, what what happens if they don't want to go? What if you free them and they say, well, we don't want to go back to Africa? Are you then going to enslave them again and force them you know, to a country they'd never been? So there were a lot of pragmatic reasons why colonization didn't work. But it was very seriously considered, and a matter of fact, there were some attempts to make it work, to make it happen. In fact, the American Eugenic, I mean, I'm sorry, the American Colonization Society was actually funded by the United States Congress and supported by um, most of the big politicians at that time, including Abraham Lincoln. These people all believed that colonization was the, was the solution to this quote-unquote problem. Um, when colonization failed, then they began to cast about for other ways to deal with this with this issue. And it was at about this time in history that Galton came up with the idea of eugenics. And actually, before Francis Galton, there was no such word in the English language as eugenics. He made up the word. So he is truly the father of, of eugenics. And he and his cousin Charles Darwin began to advance this, this idea about the time, about the same time, that the, that the concept of colonization was failing. And so what you had was these ultra-wealthy elitists uh, gravitating toward this new world view, this new philosophy of eugenics, 
uh, not because they had studied it and figured out, hey, yeah, this this makes good sense, uh, or this is a good way of solving this problem. They gravitated it because it would replace their failed policy of colonization. This was just a way to solve the problem, the, the next one in line, so to speak. And so they began to really advance this, this idea of eugenics and began to fund it and began to uh, push this as a new philosophy or a new world view in the United States. Uh, again, not because they thought it was a good idea or advanced the cause of hu- the human race. My view is they didn't care about the human race. What they cared about was what was going to happen to their fortune if they let these four million people become free and go and go into the society and collapse the economy. And so, like most wars, battles, whatever you want to call them, confrontations like this, the root cause of them is inevitably financial, and that's what this was about. And so they began to push the idea of eugenics, and it continues to this day. And that was the, the point of MAFA 21, to show how this got started, to use the documentation to show how it got started. And believe me, we do have the documentation. We spent over three years researching this. And if you read the credits of MAFA 21, you can see uh, how broadly we looked at this and how much research we put into it. Uh, but we wanted to show not only how it began, but we, I think you would agree we did a, a credible job of connecting the dots up to this very moment. Uh, it is still going on to this day. Yes, and uh, folks, for those of you that are tuning in, you can now actually watch the entire documentary on their website at www.com. MAAFA21.com. So if you have an opportunity, I highly recommend that you take a look at the full length documentary. It's uh it's a very it's very disturbing to think that this is still in existence in this day and age when there is so much diversity and there has been so much effort to um to get people to just work together and recognize that we all bleed the same color blood and it's just disturbing that there are people that support this and uh unfortunately there are a lot of people who don't even understand that they are supporting this mentality because it's been cleverly disguised uh in many different ways uh, one of which uh, has to deal with the, the subject of the overpopulation of the world. Now, Mark, I just want to ask you a question. Do you think that the world is overpopulated? Uh, no, ma'am, I do not. And I think what... we undermanage our resources. I think we mismanage our resources. But I do not believe that the world cannot sustain the population that it has now or even a much larger population. You know, one of the things I often bring up to people when they when they ask this question is if you go to the time that uh, that the European settlers uh, first landed in the United States or in America, there were very very few people here. The, the Indians, uh, the Indian population was very small nationwide uh, across the whole country, and if you had gone to these so-called population experts at that time, had they existed, and said, now here's a, here are a few million, a very small number of Indians living in this gigantic country, many of whom are not able to sustain themselves and are nomadic tribes. Um, do you think that this same country could support in excess of 300 million people at the, with the highest lifestyle, uh, lifestyle in the history of the world? They would have laughed at you. But that's exactly what happened. And so I no, I do not believe that, that the world is overpopulated. You know, I can remember uh, back in the 1960s, I'm sure you're way too young to remember that, but uh, I remember it like it was yesterday. Mm. Uh, you had all of these people out here, uh, the Paul Ehrlichs of the world and others, writing these books about the population bomb that was about to explode. And I can remember uh, in high school listening to these people talk about how by the mid-1980s, we were going to have food riots in every major city in the United States. And having grown up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, I can I can tell you these people were saying, you need to get out of the city, move out to the country somewhere, become an agrarian 
um, let agriculture be your support because there's not going to be too many more years before people are going to be pouring out of Dallas-Fort Worth in these food riots because they're going to be starving because we cannot sustain the population. Well, not only – I lived through the 1980s when, when Paul Ehrlich and others were predicting that by the mid part of that decade that would be happening. Um, maybe I was asleep or something. I don't remember it happening, but I, I, don't, I don't think that it did. Um, and I think that the problem here that we, that we face is that we have mismanaged our resources not that we have outgrown them. I completely agree. And it's interesting how the propaganda is so cleverly disseminated throughout uh, the public in which the whole idea that we're running out of food, that people need to conserve, they need to start hoarding food, especially food that has a shelf life of 20 years. Uh, In some cases, I mean, some of the radio shows that are out there, as well as TV shows and websites that are encouraging people to hoard food because we're running out. The population is out of control, and you need to act now. This is nothing more than fear-mongering, and the bottom line is is that in our society here in America, we, there, we, have, we have an abundance of food, and there's so much waste. And I say this not just as an opinion – I say this as a master composter who teaches composting, who sees how much waste there is that is hitting the landfills. And when you look at the organic industry and you see the propaganda that is being spewed by the agrochemical companies saying that we must support genetically modified organisms because that's the only way that we're going to feed this population. If you connect the dots, folks, and you see that, okay, well, if you subscribe to that mentality where, A, we're running out of food because we have this overgrowth of a population, if you will, of course people are going to follow that mentality and allow it to build and fester. And the bottom line is is that, um, and people are starting to talk about this a lot, that this whole um, overpopulation theory is nothing more than that. It's a theory. It's a myth. We produce a lot of food that, for the most part, uh, is wasted. I mean, look at how many cows are slaughtered in what they they uh, refer to as the retirement program, where they want to get the prices of beef up. So what do they do? They slaughter the excess cows to drive up the prices. And, you know, that's something that you can Google. Or the well, milk yeah, is dumped. Know, as far as this wasteful deal, you don't have to take my word for it or your word for it. I would challenge somebody, just go to a restaurant sometime, just a typical, ordinary restaurant, and look at the amount of food that is thrown away, that is completely unused. There there has been a – I don't know if you've paid attention to this or not in restaurants, but there's been this trend over the last, um, I'd say, 30 years or so to radically increase portion sizes of food in an effort, basically it's a marketing hype to say, look, you get more food here than you get over here for the same amount of money, so therefore you want to come to our restaurant because our portion sizes are so much larger. Irrespective of the fact that a ton of that food never gets eaten, and even when it does get eaten, now we have the, the, the fattest people on the face of the earth. And, it, it, you know, if we would just use some common sense in all of this, we could see, and just apply common sense to this, we could see that this idea that we cannot produce enough food to sustain this planet is laughable. We're we're producing enough food right now to sustain the planet. It's just that the people who are starving to death are starving to death because we are mismanaging those resources, and some of them are starving to death for political reasons, where you have nations here that cannot feed their own people, um, and they they will pass laws to prevent things that, from happening that would allow them to feed their own people. So the problem here is is one of politics and wastefulness. That, those are the two issues that must be addressed if we're truly concerned about the sustainability of the earth. Well, I think all of this ties into the fact that if there if the agrochemical companies are who whose stocks are being purchased by the very folks that you mentioned that are pushing this eugenics agenda. I mean, let's let's just take a look at this here. If you have the people that are investing in these agrochemical companies, 
and they're telling people, hey, look, we don't produce enough food. We need to invest in these technologies that are genetically modifying something that's already been perfected in nature in order to feed this overgrowth of, an, of a population. It all ties in together. And the bottom line is, is that uh, when you have people frantically scurrying about saying, you know, we need to hoard food, there's too many people, we need to do something about these populations in other parts of the world where, you know, for the most part, people are never going to go to these places, they're never going to know any of these people. And the bottom line is, is that no human being has the right to determine if another person should have their uh, God-given right to reproduce or not. And or, that's or the bottom line. Yeah, yeah or and, to live out their life. And and that's what eugenics is about. It is about uh, basically um, using death as a way to make life better for those who survive. And it's it's a philosophy that is completely immoral. You cannot justify this from a moral perspective. Um, but that's what we're doing. That's what we've been doing ever since Galton came up with this idea and started pushing it, and our popular culture started embracing it in a lot of different forms, and we are still embracing it in a lot of different forms. And I'll tell you, there's some dangers here that I don't think most people are aware of um, as we as we pr proceed into this century. Um, you know, if you... I, I did some research on this not too long ago, uh, not in relation to MAFA 21, but in relation to another project that I've been working on on this issue of, of population. Since 1900, our primary target of uh, our efforts to reduce the overpopulation, if you, if you believe it's a problem, which I don't, but if you do, then our primary target of our effort has been at the beginning of life. Uh, we've pushed birth control, and we've pushed you know, contraception, and we have, uh, in the latter part of the 20th century, embraced the issue of the idea of legalizing abortion. And when you start talking to people about the need to protect the unborn child, for example, um, one of the first arguments you'll hear is about overpopulation. Oh, but what are we going to do with all these kids, and who's going to feed them, and who's going to pay for them, who's going to do all these other things? Well, if you again, if you go back to the 1900, uh, an interesting thing jumps out at you. In 1900, the lifespan of the average American was around 44 years. Uh, a newborn baby in 1900 could expect, on average, to live to be 44 years old. Um, by 2000, it was right at 76, and we have. We have all these people railing and have been railing since the early 1900s about the potential of overpopulation and that we have to embrace birth control and abortion as a way to curb this problem. And yet, if you look at the statistics now that our lifespan has gone from, in one century, from 44 years to seven, uh, over 70 years, what you see is that um, killing off these babies and preventing their, their conception through birth control has not solved the problem because the real problem is, if, if you see this as a problem, the problem isn't that we're having too many babies. We're having fewer babies per family by a long shot than what we were having in 1900. So the problem isn't that we're having too many babies. The problem is that older people are living longer. And so from a demographic standpoint, and this is not a matter of my opinion or your opinion or my morality or your morality. This is simply a matter of mathematics. It's demographics. If you look at it, the primary cause of overpopulation, if there is such a thing, is not babies. It's older people that are living too long. And once you recognize that, you enter to, into some really dangerous territory, and especially when you start combining it with another issue, which is our health care system, which we're having this big national debate right now over public health care and mm. our socialized medicine and all that. But... Um, at some point, people are going to start thinking, well, wait a minute now. If demographically speaking, the problem is not babies, but it's older people, then that's where we need to start putting the emphasis. And we have already established a principle in our culture 
that we will use death, in, in this case abortion, we will use death as a way to achieve population goals. Why would we limit that then to the people who are causing the most problem? Why would we exclude them from the solution? And you're seeing this already in other parts of the world. And I think we're starting to see it here in the United States, this attitude that, okay, we've already accepted using death as a way to solve the problem. We've already crossed that moral uh, Rubicon. So once we've gotten to that point, um, what's the problem in going after the elderly? And, you know, I would I would ask the question to someone uh, who says there's overpopulation, and once you point out the demographic reality that the problem is the is older people living too long, not too many young people being born. Why do we why do we allot any money in this country to medical research that's designed to prolong human life? Why would we do that if we believe that there's overpopulation and that that's a problem? Why would we actively? Because it, put, it uh, economically makes sense. The bottom line is, if you take a look at this, and uh, I just want to point this out, you look at the commercials that are on TV, how many commercials are starting to pop up for different cancer, medications, treatments, what have you. Not to mention the fact that when you look around you as far as the people that you know, how many people do you know have been affected with or uh, with some sort of terminal disease, whether it's heart disease, cancer, what have you. So many people out there have cancer or, as I said, heart disease, what have you. And the thing is, is that 20 years ago, you know, you didn't hear about so many people having cancer. It just wasn't like that. Now you see it with the animals, too. At what point are we going to say, okay, enough is enough? I mean, it's almost as if we're, we're destroying life in every possible way, and for what reason? I mean, it's just mind-boggling that we can be as evolved as we are as a species and still have that little regard for life. Well, what we're seeing right now is something... Now, I I don't know how old you are. I'm 64. And I was was born in 1948, which is the beginning of the baby boomer generation. The baby Mm -hmm. boomer generation runs from 1946 to 1964, that 18-year period of time. And it has been known for decades. I remember this being a conversation when I was in high school, that when the baby boomer generation began to reach retirement, we were going to have major economic problems in this country. And everybody has talked about this for decades, but there was nothing that could be done about it, and so... It kept the, the can kept on getting kicked down the road from one political party, from one political time, um, from one Congress to the next, because no one knew what to do anything, what to do about it. And in the meantime, though, we did the one thing that could make the problem worse, which is by really pushing birth control to the point that, uh, as we documented in MAFA 21. The United States government seriously considered, as did the United Nations, putting birth control chemicals in the public water supply. This was a serious uh, debate that was had back in the 1960s, and there were people really pushing for this. So we pushed birth control, and then in 1973 we legalized abortion, and so far we've killed approximately 53 million babies through abortion. So we took out not only did we know that this problem was this problem with baby boomers retiring was on the horizon but we took out millions of the next generation that theoretically under our social security system would have been there to take care of them we should not be surprised in the least and i don't think many people are connecting the dots on this but we should not at all be surprised that the first the oldest baby boomers, those born in 1946, became eligible to retire, to start taking their Social Security, and to retire in 2008. And that's when our economy collapsed. And I don't, you know, people can sit here and say, well, can you tie those two together? Yes. 
if if you if we had a three hour talk show to talk just about this subject, you can absolutely tie those two together. And I don't think that we can sit here and say, well, you know, we we um, those two are unrelated. They're not unrelated. They're absolutely related. And there was even a Russian economist I can't remember recall his name right now that I read years ago, who predicted this very thing. He said. The American economy will continue to be strong. It will have its up and down business cycles, but it will continue to be strong until around 2008 when the baby boomers start retiring and then the economy is going to collapse. Um, he predicted this back in the in the 1950s, I think, is when he first started predicting that, making these predictions. Um, and others were, were saying this, the same exact thing. And you, what you have to understand is that the numbers here are staggering. When the baby boomers began eligible, becoming eligible to retire in 2008, they do so at the rate of 10,000 a day for, for the next 18 years. And with the way we're conducting our affairs in this, in this country politically and culturally, that is unsustainable. And that's why we're seeing the economic problems that we're having today. Now, let me ask you a question. With regard to this whole, um, I guess, plan to help other people outside the United States as well as here, um, what they refer to as family planning, it's kind of interesting to see how this whole thing is spun, um, especially when you observe how um, there are suggestions to have very young girls on these medications. Uh, and some people say, well, you know, that's being proactive. And other people will say, well, you know, something, uh, if it will help women to have options so that they can uh, pursue a career and then when they're ready uh, at a later point, uh, determine when they're going to have a family. It's kind of interesting. Society wants it one way, but then they want it another. I mean, they push you to have your children in your 20s, but yet women that are in their 30s and 40s, if they have children, you know, you hear everything under the sun about, oh, you know, uh, this one here, she pursued her career, blah, 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 she was too selfish. You know, the list goes on and on. So it's like, okay, well, um, you can't have it both ways. But the bottom line is is that it's interesting to see how many women, especially men, have had issues trying to conceive in the last, I would say, 15 years. There have been so many couples that have had issues uh, just trying to uh, go full term with a pregnancy because of many of the medications and, and just different environmental issues. Well, yeah, if you go back, I did a study on this years ago, uh, again, for another project. And if you go back um, to the end of World War II, you can find, beginning with the end of World War II, you can find a lot of good medical data that the government began to start collecting. And one of them was on the issue of infertility, um, and especially as the soldiers were returning from World War II and getting married, mm -hmm. starting families, and that's where the baby boomer generation came from. And they started looking at the issue of infertility. And what they found, um, again, don't, don't hold my feet to the fire because it's been years since I studied this, but I seem to recall <laughs> that at the time they were saying that among the returning soldiers um, who are getting married, that one couple out of, it was like out of every 21 or 22 would have fertility issues. Today it's one in six. One in wow. six couples will have fertility problems today. Now, we're looking at all of the various reasons for this, and we and we want to say, oh, it's because uh, the environment's bad. Well, that may or be, may not be true. Um, I would certainly point out that we haven't seen this problem reversing itself over the last 30 years, despite the fact that our environment is certainly cleaner from an air and water standpoint than it was 30 years ago. Um, the changes we made, for example, in the auto industry um, have had dramatic effects um, on, this, on this issue, and we haven't, yet we haven't seen this fertility thing reversing itself. Um, 
Well, I think but they've it, replaced it, though, with Mark. I, I think they've replaced uh, the issues with the automobile industry with other issues, uh, such as, uh, for example, this is something that you may not be familiar with, but uh, with the introduction of GMOs, you have the companion technology uh, called neonicotinoids. These are the systemic pesticides, and basically it's a, dyna a dynamic duo, if you will, that is devastating. I mean, it, it's it's disastrous, and the bottom line is is that this stuff is bad news, but yet because there is this push for how are we going to feed this ever-growing population, we need to keep pushing these uh, these technologies. I mean, everything is, it, it's like you get rid of one one bad thing and you just replace it with something that's far worse. Yeah, that may be true, but I'm saying one of the things that our society refuses to do mm. is to look at some of the, some of the known uh, uh, complications, for example, of again, we'll use induced abortion as, as an example of this. Um, we cannot get the United States government to do studies to find out if this un infertility is somehow related to the explosion in the number of abortions in this country. Remember this, uh, in America today, according to the Centers for Disease Control, over 40% of all women of childbearing age have had at least one abortion. And in the second 40, over 40% 40 of all abortions are done on women who've had at least one prior abortion. Now, if you go to the medical data, one of the things that you see is that abortion causes issues in future pregnancies. For example, issues like placenta previa or placenta increcia or Asherman syndrome. Um, we know that there's been a dramatic increase in the number of women who have to have cesarean sections. And it's been long established that women who have prior abortion histories are more likely to have to have a cesarean section in pregnancies they intend to carry to term. So we refuse to look at these particular issues because it's not politically correct to look at those. And so then you have to turn your focus on all these other uh, problems and, and my argument would be that it'd be kind of like if if you suspected today, um, June, that you had some sort of physical problem mm -hmm. and you had some symptoms of a physical problem, and I said to you, "Well, it may be X," and you say, "No, no, 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 I refuse to consider the possibility it may be X. I'll look at Y and Z and R and Q and all those things. Well, what if it really is X? You're never going to be cured. Interesting point. And that's what we're doing here. We're saying that because of the political nature of things like abortion, we're not even going to consider the possibility that all these problems that are created as a result of having an induced abortion can cause infertility. We won't even look at that possibility. Well, if we won't study and we won't look at it, um, it it's pretty amazing to me that we think we're going to solve these problems because we're not. We're not going to solve them. This is going to continue to go on, and uh, that's what's happening. And women are being used as guinea pigs for all these chemicals and all these drugs and all these uh, uh, surgical techniques. Women are being used as guinea pigs. Now, it's interesting, Mark, when you look at the general population and when it comes to different issues uh, with women's health, how many unnecessary procedures are performed that actually devastate uh, a woman's reproductive system, meaning unnecessary hysterectomies, unnecessary uh, fallopian tube removals. Uh, I mean, you name it, it's done. And it's just astounding that this is... Uh, th this is growing, and when you look at everything that you've documented with Myopha 21, and then you just start looking at all different sorts of variables, it's kind of horrific to see that, okay, in addition, you know, it it's almost as if um, the bases are being covered by um, further extending 
um, you know, this agenda by just removing organs just to prevent uh, a woman from being able to reproduce entirely. Well, yeah, but let's just use one. Um, when you say unnecessary procedures that are being done on women, um, and let's just say, for example, there there is a big concern that uh, too many C-sections are being done, and and maybe they are. But let's think about that for, for just a moment. Let's just use that particular issue, for example. Um, when a woman has placenta previa, and I don't know if you're familiar with what that is, but it's where the uh, uh, unborn child attaches, the fertilized egg attaches to the uterus near the cervical opening, and the, and the placenta grows over the cervical opening, which prevents a vaginal delivery. In, in past years, this was a death sentence. This, you know, it wasn't uncommon a um, hundred years ago for women to die in childbirth. That was not uncommon at all. And one of the reasons was if they had placenta previa, they had no way of knowing that. And so she would go into labor. The baby cannot cannot be expelled, um, and she dies. And placenta previa is one of the causes of that. Well, we know for a fact that having a uh, suction curettage first trimester abortion in which a curette, a curette is used to dislodge fetal tissue and placenta matter from the uterus cre- creates scar tissue, which dramatically increases the chances that a future pregnancy will be located near the cervical opening because the cervical opening does not get the scar tissue. The area near the cer- cervical opening does not get scarred. And so you have an increased risk of placenta previa. So then the question becomes, when that woman gets pregnant and then she, her physician says, you have to have a, a C-section, was that an unnecessary C-section? No, it wasn't. And so people say, well then, well then why are women having to have more C-sections today than they did in prior years? And the first thing that you hear is, well, they're just doing them because it's convenient and the doctors like it better and the doctor wants to get all his patients delivered at a certain time and wants to go on vacation. Well, that may or may not be true. We could study that. But if we're going to say that the one thing we won't study is whether abortion increases the risk of placenta previa, which we already know for a fact is true, but if we're not going to even consider that, then we're wasting our time to even look at this issue. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And and when you when you put political correctness into these things, to the point that you're just going to blindly accept that there are no problems associated with abortion, and, and using abortion as an example here, then whatever problems may be associated with it, which are very well medically established, um, you're never going to solve those problems because you're not going to look at one of the causes. Now, let me ask you a question. This uh, came up uh, quite frequently uh, from comments that that have come in about today's segment from our audience. Uh, There are many people, men and women, that believe that, uh, you know, there should be options for women. There should be medical alternatives uh, as far as different uh, forms of contraception, so on and so forth. in your opinion, do you think that these are options for women or options to minimize a woman's capacity to reproduce? Well, I mean, we, we, we're we getting off in, in lots of areas where people will say, well, you're just a conspiracy theorist or you're... You oh, know, no, 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 no. I, yeah. I'm, I'm just I'm asking you what your thought, thoughts are because this is uh, something that has come up... Uh, Often uh, from the comments, as I said, from the audience, and I'm I'm just uh, curious as to what your thoughts are on that. Are you asking me whether I believe that there are people out there who are actively pushing this stuff as a way to make women have less fewer children? Yes, absolutely. There's Thank no you. doubt about it. And and now you're seeing, for example, um, this push. It was just revealed as part of Obamacare. And uh, Kathleen Sebelius from HHS just mandated that all health care plans must cover sterilization um, 
all health care plans that are given to college students must must cover sterilization. And I would ask you, do you think that if you went to um, college campuses all over the country and you didn't mention this, but you just ask college women, um, and, and my daughter's in college, I have a 21-year-old daughter, she's a senior at University of North Texas, um, if you ask them what are the things that you're concerned about and what would you like to see your your health care uh, cover that it doesn't now cover, or what would you like to see solidified, maybe that it does cover, and you want to make sure that doesn't get taken out of the, of the mix. If you had done this, say, two years ago, what percentage of college-aged females would have said, I'm real concerned that my health care program does not cover sterilization? That's, that's just mortifying, just the whole subject. I mean, most women... Uh, even the the topic of uh menopause so many women when they're going through uh through the initial stages you know it, it it's a tough yes place to be i have uh, someone but, in my life right now doing that so i i know exactly what you're talking about but he, but, but to talk about civilization that's i mean that is it's it's horrifying just to even think that this is something that would be included. Why would you want that included? Um, again, I mean, I'm, I'm just I'm just yeah. saying rhetorically. Again, I, I, let's, but, I but let's go back to my let's go back to my original question. What what percentage of these girls, young women in college, would have volunteered that one of their concerns is that their their school's health care policy does not cover sterilization? And I would I would argue to you. That the that the number it's a nice round number it's zero. You wouldn't have found one woman out of a hundred thousand that would have said one of my concerns about my college medical uh, plan is that it doesn't cover sterilization. And yet now we have an administration that's coming out here that's pushing all of this stuff. And Kathleen Sebelius is now saying we are going to go to the mat over this, and we are going to require that every college-age girl in this country has access to sterilization. Now, if if you say, what is the motive behind that? And could it be part of this deal of saying, we are not only going to take, give individual women the right to choose whether they want to get pregnant or not, but we're going to see that they don't get pregnant. And when you say things like that, people think you're nuts. But then again, I would go back and ask the question, then why would Kathleen Sebelius... Um, come out and say something like this? Why would the Obama administration issue this mandate that's going to say every college health care plan must include free sterilization? What's the agenda here? And people are just ignoring this stuff. Well, the same way that they have really not been paying attention to the fact that we have how many crops that have been, uh, how many GMO crops that have been deregulated? I mean, once again, that was my point with if you have this push for the agrotechnology and then you have this th- these other things, you know, at some point, and I'm not a big fan of conspira- these conspiracy theorists, this and that, you know, some of these people just kind of scare the hell out of me. But uh, when you start looking at these things, at some point you have to say, okay, you know, well, maybe there's some – uh, credibility here. There's some facts here that I have to start paying attention to, and that's my point. You know, you start connecting the dots, and it's just like, oh, good God, is this really, is this, is this a reality? And it is. Well, yeah, and when, like I say, that's what I said a moment ago. You, you, you get painted into a corner where you sound like you're some sort of conspiracy nut when you at when you say these things. So I just. I don't say them. What I do is ask the question, and I would ask the question to somebody, you tell me, you explain to me why Kathleen Sebelius felt it necessary to call a press conference uh, last week or week before and announce that Obama. one of the aspects of Obamacare was that they were going to require all these college health care plans to include sterilization. Now, we know that happened. There's no doubt about that. You can go on YouTube and see it. So the question then becomes, if it's not, if there isn't such a thing as a conspiracy, and all of us who might even consider that are, are whacked out, okay, give me another explanation. What's the other explanation for this? And tell me what you think about my original question. If you had asked college co-eds, 
do you, you know, what do you want to see included in your health care? What percentage of them would have said sterilization? And I'm going to tell you it would be zero. You wouldn't have had one of them say that. And yet this has got to be part of the mandate. So I don't know. If, if you don't think that that's a conspiracy, tell me what the what, what's going on here. What's the agenda here? I don't know. I'm asking you. I don't have any answers. I, I'm just kind of horrified to know that uh, sterilization is – now an option being offered it's uh, uh I, I don't even have words that can describe how disgusted i feel at this you're point you're talking about offering this to to girls between the ages of 18 and 22 basically right and usually girls between 18 and 22 when they're in college you know granted they're focused on their careers but they're also uh most of my friends uh in college uh met their spouses during those years and maybe they didn't get married right away but uh later on they did in some cases but the thing is is that you're not looking at sterilizing yourself you're looking at uh thinking okay well you know um when are we going to get married when are we going to uh buy a house plan a family so on and so forth uh not when am i going to sterilize myself that's not something that i can't imagine has occurred uh I, I don't even know who would have that kind of conversation, to be honest with you, Mark. I, it, it's mind-boggling. And again, it's, all these people that think this is this is laughable to suggest that this is some part of some conspiracy, I say, okay, fine, you may be right. Maybe we are whacked out. Maybe June and I are just crazy as a drugstore rats. Then tell, <laughs> then tell me what the reality is, right? Tell me what. Tell me. Give me an alternative explanation for why why we would be doing this. And by the way, this is just one of many issues that are involving the the socialized medicine aspects that we're, I mean, ideas that we're looking at right now. This is just one of many of them that beg an explanation. Why why are we doing this? What is the what is the agenda here? And I don't think people are, I think people are asleep at the switch. And I, I think you know, until I think, people... I think more people, for example, I'd use this area as an example, but this is true across the country. More people right here in Denton, Texas or Dallas-Fort Worth are worried about whether the Cowboys go to the Super Bowl next year than are worried about any of these issues. That's a very good point, actually. A colleague of mine uh, who has been uh, quite outspoken on the issues pertaining to the beekeeping community, well, they affect everybody, but he said, you know, we spend more money on the Super Bowl than we do anything else, and people are more concerned about who's going to win than major events that are occurring that uh, will have an impact on our lives from here on out. And it's just, you know, people are just completely disconnected, Mark. Now let me ask you a question. Uh, with this with this documentary, what made you decide what made you decide to produce this and put this out there now? Why at this particular point in time? Well because I wanted people to see uh that as someone who's pro-life and has been involved in the battle against against the wholesale slaughter of these children for almost for over 30 years now, I wanted people to understand what the true motives here were. And I, you know, if if you go around the country and you start asking people about their position on abortion, for example, they will say, um, "Well, you know, I just don't. I, I think this is a woman's right and." Uh, abortion was legalized to to advance the cause of women and protect women, and, and so therefore I support legalized abortion. And my argument has been, and I have said this in many speeches that I've given in hostile environments. And look, if you wanna if you wanna support legalized abortion, you have that right. That's your that's your business. You support it, but at least do it out of knowledge and not out not out of stupidity. Because right now you're doing it out of stupidity. If you think for one moment that abortion was legalized in order to advance the cause of women, you're nuts. Abortion was legalized as an instrument of eugenics and primarily to wipe out the black race in America. And I know that sounds preposterous, but I would ask you, June, did we make that connection or not in MAFA 21, and did we not document it? Yes, you did. It was very, very clear. And I think one of the most startling parts of the film is... Uh, in the beginning, when you go around asking people randomly what they think the number one cause of death within the African-American community is, 
And it was just very interesting. Um, do you mind if I... Oh, no, and we, are, and we ask only black people. I, I really thought that that was extremely powerful because, you know, I would have said uh, heart disease or cancer. And, or AIDS um, or, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it was really disturbing when the gentleman that – when when uh, uh, the question was asked to the, the last gentleman uh, and you let him know that it was abortion that um, – has been the number one cause. I mean, just the look on his face was priceless. And well, not yeah. only is it the number one cause, it's killed twice as many African Americans since 1973 as all those other issues combined. Um, there are more African Americans killed in ab- American abortion clinics every week than were killed in the seven years of the Vietnam War. Um, black women make up less than 13%, just around 12% of the female population of America, but they have 37% of the abortions. Um, and this was the goal all along, and I think we made a, a an absolute airtight case for that argument. And people think I'm nuts until they watch the video. But I can tell you the responses that we've had from it, from the African-American community, have been overwhelming. And, and I will point out something, too. I was not the first person to pick up on this. It was not some, you know, fat old white guy from Denton, Texas that picked this picked this out. If you go and look at the, and this is one of the things that shocked me because I've been in the pro-life movement 30 years and I didn't know this. If you go look at the, if I ask, if I were to ask you prior to having seen Mahafa, who were the original, give me a history of the pro-life movement. How did it start and, and who was its origin, where was its origin and so forth. I think most people would say, well, it started as a response to the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision uh, that legalized abortion on demand through all nine months of pregnancy nationwide. And that was the beginning of the, and then you had the Catholic Church, and then you had, you know, all these pro-life groups like ours and others spring up and start fighting against it. The reality is that the first anti-abortion pro-life organizations in America were organizations like the Black Panthers, and the Nation of Islam, and other what were generally called back in the 60s radical 60s civil rights groups. <laughs> they had picked this up early on and were outspoken opponents of the spread of birth control and the legalization of abortion. Remember, this was before abortion was legalized. But they saw it coming, and they were outspoken opponents of it. Even, like I said, I mentioned Nation of Islam a moment ago. Uh, you can go read Elijah Muhammad's books. Uh, he had a book out called A Message to the Black Man in America. Uh, and he's a founder, of course, of the Nation of Islam. Um, he has two chapters in that book talking about this very issue, that abortion would be legalized and birth control would be spread as a way to wipe out the black community. And Jesse Jackson used to make that argument before he sold out because he needed money to run for president. Um, but... Eldridge Cleaver, Stokely Carmichael, you go down the list, and these guys were were spreading this message back in the 1960s. I met with a guy who was the head of the Black Panther Party for North Texas, came to my office after seeing my Alpha 21, and I had a really good and long conversation with him. And, in fact, I wish I had known about him at the time. We would have put him in the movie. But he was he was making that point. He said, I was so happy to see somebody do this, make this movie, because... He said, we used to talk about this every day back in the 1960s, that all these people pushing for the legalization of abortion, he said, they could sit here and talk about it being for women's rights all they wanted to, but we knew the truth. We knew what the real motive here was, and they were exactly right, and that's exactly what's happened. And as far as this issue of women's rights, I would always point out that the historic feminist position on abortion has always been pro-life. If you go back and read the, the comments from people like um, Virginia Woodhull, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, um, Susan B. Anthony, uh, just go down the list. Uh, Evelyn Judge, who wrote the Re- Equal Rights Amendment, these women were all outspoken opponents of the idea of legalizing abortion because they saw it as something that would profit sexually irresponsible and sexually predatory males. And the evidence of that, that that's what happened, is 
everywhere today. We've done two reports already on it, and we're preparing another one right now. But the idea that abortion was legalized to profit women is absolutely and utterly laughable. And that's why we did MAFA 21, to show people what the real motive for it was. And if people want to still support it, then that's their business. But at least do it out of out of knowledge and out of wisdom and not out of abject stupidity, which is the way it's being done right now. Well, I, I think a lot of the information that's put out there, uh, when people take a closer look because of films like uh, MAFA 21 and they just start thinking about, okay, well, you know, um, I'm being fed information, but when you come to the realization that the information was crafted for a specific reason, that's when you kind of have that moment and you think, oh, my goodness, you know, I I can't believe that this is what is the real agenda. So, um, you know, the work that you've done with the documentary is so powerful. And uh, let me just ask you a question. Um, Where are you going to go from here? I mean, with public education, um, how can you, I guess, further get this message out uh, to the community so that more people can understand really what is going on? Well, for one thing, uh, you, we've we've half the price of the documentary. You can buy one for nine ninety five. We're having people now buying them in the thousands. Uh, we literally sold a thousand this morning to one person. Um, so this is happening, and this word is starting to spread. Uh, we had no idea how big this was going to be. It, it is it has become exponentially bigger than anything we ever thought it would be, and we're we're really just at the beginning of this. And we recently hired a full-time person who does nothing but promote um, Alpha 21. And um, so I think the sky is the limit here. And we're op- we're opening people's eyes, and especially young people, especially on college campuses. Um, we're seeing enormous uh, response to this. Uh, Alpha 21 has also been shown twice in, in the Visitor Center in the United States Congress. So... We're seeing a lot of movement on this. It's going to take a while. You're talking about going up against an ingrained bureaucracy that's that's uh, highly funded, uh, protected by the media. Uh, Planned Parenthood alone gets a, over a million dollars a day, a million dollars a day in federal dollars alone. So we know what size of we know what the size of our enemy is, but. Um, we're seeing mountains be moved with this with this documentary, and like I said, we just recently have lowered the price of it so that more people can buy them and spread the message, and also they can watch it for free if they want to watch it on a computer. Um, they can go to myalpha21.com and watch it right there for free. So uh, we're doing a lot of things to to uh, take this to the next level. But understand this, June, we've already had showings in over 300 cities around the United States. And we've got more showing scheduled right now, and we've already put out over eighty thousand uh, DVDs, and we've we just got another twenty five thousand in last Friday. So uh, the thing has already just exploded beyond anything we imagined, and it just continues to grow. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show today and uh, for sharing the information that you've learned uh, with our audience. And, you know, um, for what it's worth, folks, take a look at the film. It's not going to cost you anything to go to uh, www.maafa21.com. There, the, the As Mark said, the full-length documentary is available for free to watch. And... You know, make up your own minds. But, uh, you know, the information really needs to get out there. People need to understand that uh, mainstream media is not going to be talking about this whatsoever, uh, especially with the fact that they don't want to lose the financial support from their advertisers, who definitely are not going to, uh, you know, admit that they're connected in one way or the other with uh, the agenda that's been discussed today. But, uh, Mark, can you also give uh, any information that you have available, how people can get involved with your organization? Well, uh, one of the things they could do is they could go to, uh, we have a whole collection of websites, but they can. Uh, we have a what we call a gateway website called ProLifeAmerica.com. 
and they can go there and um, see all sorts of ways to get involved and, and get all kind of information that, like you said, the mainstream media is not going to give them. And this Maafa 21 story is a classic example of this. As a matter of fact, I think we show quite clearly in the movie that the media has been complicit in carrying this, this program out. And so um, if you think you can rely on the mainstream media in this country to tell you the true story about what's going on on any subject, um, you're fooling yourself. But anyway, if they go to ProLifeAmerica.com, they can uh, see a lot of information there about other projects that we've done. And we've got a lot of in- interesting things about to come out. So um, that would be my suggestion. Mark, thank you again for coming on the show today. It's been wonderful having you. Well, thank you, June. And folks, thank you so much for tuning in today. This has been June Stoyer with the Organic Bee Radio Show. Have a great afternoon.